0: All right, well, hello, I'm Josiah, and normally I'm joined with my wife, Ann Jessica, Uh and we were missionaries and campus pastors for seven years until we stepped back in 2019 to seek health and re-examine our beliefs, and right now I'm a Christian, but not an evangelical, kind of can't stand a lot of what's going on in evangelicalism right now. Uh, My wife is an agnostic and very much also not into evangelical scene, uh, but it's been part of our DNA for a whole life, so we're trying to process it all, uh, and we're on this journey to try and seek health together, Uh, and today I'm joined by a very, very special guest, Bruxy Cavey. and uh Bruxy, you mentioned in a sermon years ago that uh, you have this strange thing that happens where people feel like they're your best friend because they listen to all your sermons. And you're mm-hmm. like, hey, <laughs> I don't know you, but you know me. So there's this weird thing that happens. Mm-hmm. Uh Back in 2008, 2007, 2008 was my first experience pastoring and it didn't end well. And I had kind of this burnout experience. And that was the first time I was very much fed up with the church. And, um, at that point I was halfway through seminary and I was ready to walk away from it all. And really it was, I was driving a truck at the time and I had a lot of time for podcasts and I discovered your podcast and you kind of brought me back to faith at that point and kind of, you were the only pastor I could stand to listen to. Um, And unfortunately, I didn't keep tracking with you, like in hindsight, at this point, I'm like, man, I would have been better if I had done that. But I got into other voices online and got into the young restless reform movement with John Piper and Mark Driscoll. And here's all the answers. And here's masculinity. And here's, you know, rah, rah, you know, let's tell people about Jesus and so about the time I graduated from seminary my pre- seminary professors were not on board with this uh with this new direction they thought it was very overly simplistic but it made sense to me um and so i when i graduated i i uh, became a missionary became was overseas for a short time that didn't work out and then was a campus pastor in quebec uh not too far from where you are for uh another five years and um, we just really had to step back because everything kind of just fell apart spiritually, emotionally. Um, th- it, it actually, let me rephrase that. It didn't fall apart, but we stepped back before it fell apart because things were not working out. Um, so that's a long introduction to say your church, uh, your your church hashtag or or slogan is a church for people that aren't into church. Can you help, us understand like what does that mean a church that for people that aren't into church how can you have a church for people that aren't into church how does that work
1: it's a good question to kick it off and i should also say first of all josiah your journey is fascinating um and you probably represent emotionally and spiritually the journey of a lot of people are our cultures in Canada and the US and just Western society in general, it has a, a large and growing demographic of people who would say I'm spiritual, but not religious of people who yeah. have often grown up within a religious background. And it has either seemed irrelevant to them or it has, or worse than that, it has become a painful experience and a negative experience a destructive experience instead of a, an experience that has built them up. And um, and that's true, also uh, true, especially for the Christian religion in some people's lives. And so we've we've said I mean, many of these people who say, you know, I've had a negative experience with religion, especially the Christian religion, might also say, I'm not prepared to fully jettison the idea of God, yeah. and I even have a warm spot left for Jesus, even if I don't believe in God. Um, there's still something. I have to admit, there's something beautiful about the historical figure of Jesus. And and so we wanted to create a safe space for these kind of spiritually curious, spiritually warm, spiritually open people, even if they would see themselves as non-religious, want to create a safe space for them to come and ask questions and just process who they are, who they want to be, and how Jesus can still play a role in that. Um, and so we would have people at The Meeting House who would, would be atheist, but warm to Jesus. And I would say, even as an atheist, I want to learn about Jesus And then we would have people who are, you know, gaga for God who say, but I need to ground my faith in Jesus because a passion for God in general, well, you can blow yourself and other people up for a passion for God in general, if you're not grounded in the enemy love, peace, teaching of Jesus. And so we um, we've got a wide spectrum of people at the meeting house with Jesus kind of looping us together, tying us all together and saying, let's learn together. So I I love that. I love it completely. And in fact, that's my journey to even being a theist for believing in God. Some people are really into God and then they figure out which God and it comes down to Jesus for them. uh, But for me, I would probably be an atheist if it wasn't for Jesus, but I'm one of those people who would say Jesus he's compelling to me he he pulls me in I can't look away there's something amazing happening in the life and teachings of Jesus and and so I I I get to the point of trusting him and then Jesus tells me there's a God and Mm -hmm. I say oh okay well all right then I've trusted you on so many other things and you you have uh seemed to really be bringing truth to the table so when you tell me there's a God I'm going to trust you on that one as well um, so that's how I come to faith. So, so to say we're a church for people who aren't into church is to say, for people who are not into church in the, in, in the structural sense and have been burned out, we are, we're a church that is uh, is more open and loose around the edges for who's in and who's out, less judgmental on that categorization, but more centered on Jesus. It's what's called centered set instead of bounded set, which is a whole other conversation and people can Google it, but but we're centered set versus bounded set, which a lot of religions are and uh, a lot of churches are.
0: So your book is the end of religion encountering the subversive spirituality of Jesus. And in that book, you really go into depth about a lot of the problems with religion and how Jesus uh, didn't come to establish a different religion. He came to blow up all religions and show Mm -hmm. us that religion is not the way. Um, As we were, as my wife and I were processing and and kind of stepping back and having kind of a a private crisis of faith, 2020 happened. And Mm -hmm. it just was like, what are you guys doing? Like, what are you guys doing? You know, there's things happening. God is at work, but it's not happening with the church. Um, Or it doesn't seem like, you're playing a game that I'm not seeing myself wanting to be participating in. And I don't see Jesus wanting to be participating in that game. Um, maybe I'll just open-endedly ask you, what do you think? Um, how do you think the critique of Jesus would meet us today? And some of the things that perhaps an atheist would say, I can't stand church because of this, 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 and this, Mm. um, are there ways that Jesus would say exactly, in fact, I said it 2,000 years ago, this and this and this? What are some of the ways that Jesus would just lay the smack down on church?
1: <laughs> but What's interesting um, is that Jesus, uh, some, one, of, one of the primary criticisms of some people today of organized religion is that it's fraught with hypocrisy, and um, they just don't want anything to do with it. When I talk to many of my friends, they might say something along the lines of, you know, church is just full of hypocrites. I just I don't like hypocrisy, the hypocrisy of it all. And and when they say that, I don't know if they realize they're sounding like a disciple of Jesus. It was his number one bugaboo, actually, with religious people. As you hypocrites, he would say, you hypocrites, you are, you're, you're, you're putting burdens on people with your rules, regulations, rituals, and routines. Read Matthew 23 for an example of Jesus' critique of this. You put rules, regulations, rituals, and routines, these burdens upon people, but you're not willing to lift a finger to actually help teach them how to live that that life of freedom and joy. And so his, his message was very much about freedom. He said, if you listen to my teachings and you follow my way, the truth will set you free, that classic line, the truth will set you free, comes from Jesus in John chapter 8. But there he's talking about how his teachings and his way will free you up, not only from we might say the burden of our own sin or failure or guilt and shame, but he'll also free us up from the burden of our religion and our woods and shoulds and have tos and shame for what you haven't achieved. We're freed up from all of that through following the way of Jesus. So he, I think, the burden of religion, the hypocrisy of religion, the shaming and blaming of religion is something that he, well, he would meet people, and the first thing he'd say is, "You're forgiven. You're you're forgiven." And with that, within that first century context, people. Job security for religious people happened through their continual shame of people for the guilt of their sin. Uh, The animal sacrificial system, which isn't just a Jewish thing, it was ubiquitous. All religions at the time were making animal sacrifices in the different temples of their gods. And and that was a way, a very bloody and visceral way of reminding people, you have screwed up and you need to do something dramatic in order to appease the gods so they might be kind enough to forgive you. And Jesus just front end loads forgiveness. Let's get that out of the way right away. You're forgiven. That makes every sacrifice redundant. You're you're forgiven. Now let's talk about your freedom and how you're going to live on the other side of that. That, that, that was just revolutionary at the time. And, um, and I think it continues to be revolutionary as we understand the context and apply it
0: today. Well, I think it would be revolutionary. Um, I mean you in your book you said when god offered salvation as a gift of grace received by simple faith god threatened the job security of a lot of holy men pre- performing holy rituals in holy places yeah. and we can say oh yeah we believe in grace we we believe in everybody's forgiven but if if somebody walked up to you know somebody living in homosexuality or somebody, you know, that just got remarried after we're not sure the church approved of her divorce or, or somebody, you know, living with, with their, their significant other and said, you're forgiven. Whoa. Now, hold on. Are we sure that they're forgiven because we don't want to send the wrong message? You know Um, it seems to me that church is very much about, and I'm going to continually say church as a shorthand for Mm -hmm. the type of church that I grew up in. And Mm -hmm. I've explained in other podcasts, it's kind of evangelicalism. We could get more specific to say white American evangelicalism. That's not a racist slur, but it's just recognizing that in a lot of the African American or Hispanic churches, evangelicalism looks very different. And Mm -hmm. so the type of, and I'm Canadian and so are you, by the way, Um, you know that, but some people might not. Um, Did you just freeze? No internet. Come on. Are you still there?
1: Okay. Yeah. We're back in business.
0: Okay. Um, so where was I with that wonderful thought? Um, the things... <laughs> well,
1: We're two Canadians trying to figure out the white evangelical versus
0: yeah. I mean, and black. I mean, to, to boil it down, perhaps a little bit reductionistically, it's kind of like everybody's going to hell. That's the first thing. Only a few mm-hmm. people will get saved. The way to get saved is to come to our, come to me as the teacher. I'm going to tell you the right ideas. Uh, and then you need to be part of our social club, uh, come to church and, and do the things. You know, we don't emphasize that, but it is part of it, right? And the main thing is you have to obey our sexual ethics. And that's basically about it, you know? And if you do those things, check off those boxes, know the right things you're in. Except there is always kind of this hanging, well, you know, check your salvation, make sure... You know, and so they do kind of emphasize that little we're not quite sure, you know, even people that talk about eternal security are kind of like, "Well, you know, if you leave the faith, you never were saved, you know so right right, yeah um yeah. it's so true there's a scandalous for white evangelicals today or the church today to say, "Oh, you're forgiven, boom, you're done well yeah, what yeah, why do I need to go to church then?
1: You're God's child. Now let's talk about how, as his child, we're going to live together and make this work. And that's one of the beautiful things, too, about the spirituality of Jesus is that it is relentlessly um, horizontal uh, in that it, it reaches out as opposed to just being purely vertical. Um, Jesus does teach us verticality, how to pray to God and relate to God. But the working out of our faith Is relentlessly relational in our and how we treat other people around us, and that becomes our liturgy in a sense. Jesus doesn't give a lot of teaching about the actual um, structure of a a religious service or a religious life or spiritual practices, except to put a strong emphasis on loving other people as we love ourselves. And in uh, John 13, he takes the golden rule and he gives it, which is uh, you know, treat other people the way you want to be treated, which is beautiful, other centered ethics rooted in relational empathy beautiful treat other people the way you want to be treated um, but he takes that golden rule from matthew 7 and he upgrades it in john 13 to what i would call the platinum rule or the diamond rule or whatever precious metal you want to use to say now i don't want you to just treat other people the way you would want to be treated you were in their place. I want you to treat other people the way I have treated you. He says, love others the way I have loved you. And he calls it a new commandment. And it is. It's the first time he's teaching this at the end of his life. He's trained them in the golden rule. And now before he leaves in John 13, at the Last Supper, he says, now, now you're ready for this. The new way is to love other people the way I have loved you. And he could only teach this at the end of his time with his disciples. Say, I want you to spend your, your, your ethic now and how you work out your faith. It's just always ask the question, how has God treated me? And then say, okay, that's how I'm going to treat this person in this situation and that situation. And whenever you reach an ethical dilemma, you're not sure how to treat someone, you ask the question, how has God treated me? Um, how does Jesus show that? And now I'll move forward. Not how how has the religious institution treated me, but God. And then Jesus shows us a God who is beautifully, generously forgiving and embracing, especially for people who are on the margins of organized religion. Um, And so I carry that forward. And my religious, quote unquote, working out of my faith, my religion becomes loving other people. Uh, there was this guy John Wesley who said, love is my religion. He didn't tend to use the word religion for his Christian faith, and that's the word Jesus uses as faith. But if you want to use the word religion, John Wesley would say, okay, well, love is my religion. I, I focus on other people and I give to them what I know Jesus has already done for me. And I think that's, that's a beautiful way to live. And Jesus, if more and more people would follow Jesus, we would be a much more gracious and forgiving and joyful people as opposed to the impression the church has given, is that when you become more religious as a Christian, you become more judgmental and separatist. Mm. And you, conserve, you confuse conservatism with holiness, which is a classic maneuver of the Christian religion. Jesus calls us to be holy, but holy means to be separate in, in that you're not just conforming to the way of the world. You're willing to stand out. Uh, holiness is, to be going, is going in a different direction. Exactly so as as people who are not just being conformed to the selfish ways of the world we're going to be different what does that look like well it looks like love jesus would say and um and some of the ways we have to be holy is to be holy even separate from the religious institutionalization of our world um to say we're we're going to step away from some of the kind of conservative agenda uh judgmentalism when you conserve when you confuse conservatism with holiness you you default to all things uh, uh, hyper-conservative or judgmental. I don't just mean that politically conservative, but just religiously conservative in every way. And and the freeing message of Jesus is that you don't get bonus marks by being more conservative than God. Hmm. There's no need to do that. You aim for the bullseye, and the bullseye is no, not 10 feet to, to, to the left or to the right. It's You follow Jesus, and it's a very freeing
0: way. Yeah, and... You know, I'm listening to that with uh, thousands of sermons bouncing around in my mind and thinking how this would get filtered because they would say, well, love the sinner, but hate the sin. And let's make sure that we tell them that it's a sin and let's make sure that we don't compromise on what is sin. And the most loving thing we can do is invite them to church. And then we need to make sure that our religious freedom are not impinged. So we need to make sure that we think a certain way and vote a certain way. And, you know... And then we're right back to the same thing. Um, but I'm just curious what you would say about this this love the sin or hate the sin thing, because the the feedback I get is that it doesn't feel very loving when you receive that, that sort of an idea.
1: Sure, right. Well, the the challenge with words is that words get infused with both meaning and emotion. And sin is one of those words that has been used to hit so many people over the head over time, that the, the maneuver to find some sense of relief is to, is to say, I don't believe in sin, or I don't want to talk about the, the topic. But if we have actually, I think the best maneuver through is to become more biblical, not less biblical, and to stare into the fact that the, the most common word that is translated sin out of the Greek language is hamartia, which is a compound word from the word uh, of together, meaning together, and the word for not. Ha um, comes from the not, and martia comes from meros, it means to be together. Sin is to not have it all together. Sin is to be separated from who you're called to be, who you're supposed to be. Well, that's a universal human experience. I haven't got it all together. I feel sometimes separated from myself. I feel like I'm not myself. And sometimes we'll say things, we'll blurt things out, or we'll do things and say, whoa, that wasn't me, really. That wasn't me. I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I did that. Um, to be human is to have that sense of separation from our higher self who we really think we can be and should be. And that's not even me having to base that on the 10 commandments or some external law. That's me basing it on my own conscience. You know, the apostle Paul said, everyone has the law of God written on their heart just by virtue of our humanity. We have a conscience and we don't live up to our own conscience. We're separated from who we think we should be. But the beautiful thing about sin is that Jesus is um, front end loads forgiveness and says, let's, let's, release the past, and focus now on the future. The only thing about your past that matters is that Jesus has forgiven you. And, and now Christians, real Christ followers, are defined by our future. Who are we becoming? I'm not there yet, but who am I becoming? I'm going to lean into that. I'm going to participate with that flow. And, and Jesus is taking me there. And that that's filled with hope and anticipation as opposed to guilt and shame. So I'm I'm happy to say, yes, we should talk about sin more. We should talk about um, a failure, but let's talk about it in the proper context of this grace and forgiveness of Jesus that frees us from our past and then sets us up for a future-focused way of living.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, and I, I don't think anybody objects to this idea in principle of sin. Like, every, I don't think anybody says, no, I'm perfect. Seriously, I'm perfect. Mm-hmm. Right. I, but somehow it has become a very heavy message, and i 'm not sure if it 's just this uh this concept of that you are defined essentially as a sinner or that you know there's just it 's become very heavy like um, but i don 't think anybody objects to the fact that i 'm not perfect and that I need forgiveness for my sins like can you help me with that like why Why has it become so heavy this concept of sin when when in principle yeah, sure nobody 's perfect you know
1: yeah yeah that's true. Um, I think perhaps Christians have distilled the gospel, which is the word for the good news message of Jesus. Remember it's supposed to be a good news message of jesus <laughs> right, right? Um, they've distilled that down to a message purely of salvation from sin mm-hmm. uh, Jesus came, came to die and save you from your sin, so it only defines humankind in terms of of our sin. We are sinners in need of a Savior. And to define ourselves merely as sinners in need of a Savior, there's a half-truth in there, but a half-truth is also a half-lie, if you rely on it. Um, The the Bible doesn't begin in Genesis chapter 3, uh-oh, you ate the wrong apple, and now you're a sinner. The Bible begins in Genesis 1 and 2, By saying, first and foremost, we are glorious image bearers of God by virtue of our humanity. And that is not lost by what theologians call the fall or eating from the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We don't lose our identity as image bearers of God. Every human being is made in the image of God, which in ancient Near Eastern myths, uh, God's gods created humans to serve them. And... um, and and to to work the garden to provide produce for the gods to feed the gods to take care of the gods and to um and and the humans were never made in the gods image and likeness they were part of the animal kingdom and kings maybe were said to be in the image of god yeah. or right but but now this subversive biblical narrative of every human is made in the image of god and every human is is given the garden but to to produce and to care for because you're in charge of the world. You rule over it, just Genesis 1. Um, So this this identity makes the idea of sin, I mean, that's why sin is tragic, because we are falling short of who we really are and we're really meant to be. Um, When you see a worm crawling through the dirt, it's not tragic, because that's what a worm was made to do. (laughs) But when a human being is crawling through the dirt of life, you know, living below who they were made to be, then it becomes tragic. And sin is only a tragic thing because of who we're really meant to be. So I, I think the church has tended to reduce the message and the role of Jesus as Jesus as Savior from your sin, because you're a sinner. And to say, well, there's a truth in that, but there's a whole lot more than that. Jesus is also Lord and King of a kingdom that he invites you into to participate, which is this new family, this new way of living here and now, um, which is it's beautiful. and He's our mentor in how to do that. Um, and uh, and he's inviting you because you're precious to him. You are an image bearer of God, and he wants to help restore who you were originally made to be. And um, and so there's this beautiful, hopeful, joyful aspect to the message. And I I think the the message of salvation from sin there's a nugget of truth there. But it's if you only focus on that, you reduce who Jesus is and his role in our lives. You reduce the gospel uh, to merely a transaction for our own salvation and you reduce our understanding of what humankind is. Um, that's the, the church has done that classically. And, um, I, and, and the, I understand the maneuver of people to say, well, then I want nothing to do with it. But I, I'm inviting people to say, actually, if we stare into the Bible and into the teachings of Jesus even more, you'll find the answer to this oppressive system that people have set up in his name.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if we could spend some time because you've explained this in a way that um, I don't, nobody else has done as good a job and I don't think anybody else has even really touched it. Uh, You've really talked about how Jesus in some of the familiar passages that we've all read a million times, how that was a critique on religion, not just for then but for all time. Can you like, what are kind of two or three stories that really stand out? And I don't mind spending a lot of time here where Jesus Mm -hmm. really critiqued religion in some of these familiar stories that maybe we haven't seen them this way and that we could apply that to our own, you know, uh, feelings of uneasiness with religion today.
1: Sure. Okay. Um, John chapter five is a great place to go where Jesus heals a guy who hasn't, um, who was not able to walk. And when he heals him, he doesn't just tell him, stand up and walk. This is amazing. He says, pick up your mat and walk. Uh, and it, it really, he identifies that in the healing is going to be a specific action that you need to do. And that's walk away from here. Now that you can walk, you're healed. But walk away from here carrying your mat. And then John, who's telling this story, waits until just after that to tell his audience, you know, the day Jesus did this was the Sabbath. Now, in the first century, if you had any Jewish religious knowledge, that would be your moment to gasp in the story. What? The, the Sabbath. Because... There, uh, there, you know, the Ten Commandments had said not to work on the Sabbath, and then Jeremiah, the prophet, in Jeremiah seventeen, says that one of the ways that you work on the Sabbath and break God's law is by carrying around personal belongings. Hmm. Whoa! And and God took this stuff really seriously in the old covenant. There's um a story of a guy who's collecting firewood, presumably, you know, to make a fire for his family. I and mean, he does it on the Sabbath when he should have done it on another day. And God has the Israelites um, to stone him to death. So it's like really serious stuff here. And Jesus says, now you're you're healed and go and make sure you carry your mat with you. So the mat doesn't have anything to do with the miracle, but it has everything to do with the message of the miracle. And you know, Jesus is intentionally kind of sending an irreligious postcard to the, to the leaders, uh, religious leaders of his day to say, Um, I'm teaching you a way of living now that is not caught up with the details of the letter of the law. You're free from that. And I'm going to illustrate that in a way that is religiously shocking, offensive, heretical, if you're going to cling to your old religious ways. So this guy, he he now walks away carrying his mat, and the religious leaders see him. And their first question is not, hey, we know you and your you couldn't walk, and now you can walk. You know, they don't even have a normal human reaction to a person being healed. Like, wow, look at you. This is amazing. The religious leader's reaction is, who told you you could carry your mat? What are you doing carrying your mat on the Sabbath? So this is all in John 5. They, they focus on the mat. This is offensive to them. That's, and that's the thing about religion is that religion even cuts short our ability to have a normal human reaction to life sometimes. Yeah, Because we're, yeah. All, we're outside of ourselves saying, what are the laws that are out there in that holy book that I've got to, or what are the phrases I've got to say to be accepted by this group? What is the, it pulls us out of even just living an authentic human life into our conscience and our heart and our emotions and our reactions are all somewhere out there to be found in the book. And instead of saying, what's happening inside of me? A normal human reaction would be to rejoice with this guy. The religious leaders can't do it. They, well, they just got to address the religious infraction
0: it creates friends and enemies and they're seeing this guy working on the sun on the Sabbath. And they're saying, well, that's an enemy to our structure, to our system, yeah. to our beliefs. That's so it. I can't engage emotionally with whatever good is happening because the good thing that's happening might reinforce your danger towards me. So yeah. I, I can't see that. All I can see is that you're breaking the rules.
1: Yeah, that's it. That's it. So if, and, and we can apply that today, you know, there's so many things that are happening in the world that say a person might do, that would be lovely and wonderful. And the normal human reaction would be to say, I'm so happy for you. But if it if it appears to infringe upon one of those rules we've learned within a religious context, we as Christians have a hard time sometimes just rejoicing with some of the good things that happen. Well, that's really great for you. Oh, but wait, I, it also might break one of these rules that I've learned. So I have to withhold my joy and my celebration because I don't want to be misinterpreted as yeah. supporting you. And, A classic uh, confusion within religious circles is equating acceptance and agreement. Mm -hmm. Equating acceptance and agreement and seeing the two as as identical. When you confuse acceptance and agreement and you fuse them together, the problem with that is whenever you disagree with a person on a topic, which happens all the time, you feel the only way to express your disagreement is to withhold acceptance. Because if you accept them, if you celebrate with them about something going on in your life or you even just speak too kindly with them and you, you, you appear to accept them, you're afraid that'll be misinterpreted as agreement and you wouldn't want that. And so we withhold acceptance. So Christians, followers of Jesus, people who claim to be, end up being less loving, less accepting, less embracing, because we're always trying to be very clear about where we stand ethically. Mm-hmm. And, and when we understand that acceptance and agreement are two different things. You can have the debate about things you disagree with with someone, but you can do so as you are fully accepting, embracing, loving, engaging with them, celebrating the good things in their life. So what we do see in John 5, and by the way, we see it also in John 9 very clearly where Jesus heals a blind man and the same thing happens again. What we see in these chapters is that the religious leaders, their religion, their dedication to religion has diminished their humanity. It hasn't exalted, it, it's diminished it, so they can't even celebrate with something good that's happening in someone's life because they're concerned about a religious infraction that's happened. And Jesus exposes this by intentionally breaking their, with their tradition in order to, to let it play out and to say, you see, you you can't even be happy for this guy who in John 5 is healed from uh, being unable to walk and in John 9 healed from blindness. Um, it, it exposes the heart of religion when we see the reaction. And and they come to Jesus, they say, Who gave you the authority to do this? You, how can you and it does come down to an issue of authority? Um, and Jesus is taking authority over the whole religious system. Yeah. And and, and I love that. They they I went identify to say, for
0: eight years to get this authority. <laughs> Where yeah, dare yeah, you?
1: Right. Yes, yes. And it's so interesting. Jesus says, uh, he says, Listen, my father's always been working on the Sabbath, and I too am working, which is so cool because he doesn't he doesn't try and just um, dismantle the tension by smoothing it all over. Because it would have been an opportunity for Jesus to say, oh, guys, don't don't misinterpret. I just wanted him to carry his mat because I didn't want him to leave it behind. But th- don't consider that work on the Sabbath. I didn't mean to offend. Mm-hmm. That, that's not how he smoothed it over. He says, well, actually, it is work. You think you shouldn't work on the Sabbath? You're right, except... My father, that God has been working on the Sabbath, and I work on the Sabbath. I break the law because I'm above the law, uh, and I don't, I'm, I'm not submitted to it. There's not a higher authority than, well, me. I mean, he would end the Gospel of Matthew with the Great Commission by beginning and saying, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, not to that rule book, not to the Ten Commandments, not to Moses, but to me. And so we, we follow Jesus out of this way of law out of this way of micro judgments on the letter of the law. We follow him out of that into this way of love that is so beautiful and freeing. The last thing I'll say just about John five and this one healing and all, and it's the conversation that comes after the healing. That's so fascinating. Um, Jesus says, when talking with the religious leaders, then he says, you know, you, um, you search the scriptures thinking they'll give you eternal life. You need to know that just being Bible centered is not enough. You need to come to me or you'll use the Bible wrong. And he has this line in there in John 5, I think it's around verse 37 or 38, where he says, your problem, even though you, we know that they studied the scriptures, memorized large portions of the scriptures, and, and thought that they followed the Bible, he says, the problem is that you don't have the word of God in you. Boom. Uh, the, you don't have the word of God in you. It, so the Bible, knowing the Bible, saying you follow the Bible and you're all about the Bible, is not the same as knowing the word of God, the message of God to us. There's a lot of people who read the Bible a lot who can use it to justify all kinds of violence and judgment. And Jesus says, that's not the word of God. You might be drawing things from the Bible, but you don't have the word of God. And that's a real challenge to our evangelical religious systems, where we say, well, we're all about the word of God. And when we say that, we usually hold up a a big black book and maybe slap it a bit for for preaching emphasis and say you know you got to be all about the word of God and Jesus saying whoa whoa whoa. you can be all about the Bible and still miss the word of God so there's a lot packed into that one conversation in John 5.
0: Yeah and that's great and what I love about this and so many other passages uh, when I hear you talk about them is how Jesus like I don't know if I can say this correctly, but like he almost kind of gave the finger to them in a like in a way that like took them a while to unpack. Uh, like you, I think you mentioned like a holy time bomb or something like that. Yeah. But yeah. Even, yeah. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I mean, even when he turned water into wine, he used holy like it, it was like holy water, like in the Catholic Church, and and it was he desecrated basically vessels uh, of holy mm-hmm. use, and and he does this sort of thing over and over. And he wouldn't need to. He could have done it a different way, but he kind of purposely thumbs his nose. Um, and, Mm -hmm. And we can look at that and say, well, working on the Sabbath is just a rule and there's ways that we can be human and care for people. But also the Sabbath thing is not something that we've ever seen as being super important. Now, if it's something that is seen as super important, such as, I don't know, modesty or... Um, not swearing in, in the pulpit or something like that. Like we have certain taboos that are a really big deal. Um, and, and perhaps we would be far more shocked if it was something that touched on our taboos. But I do mm-hmm. want to ask kind of a meatier question. How do you, how do you draw the line between moralism on the one side? And I think we've been talking about that, that we can fall into this rut of just like, okay, well, Jesus came to change the rules. Okay. Well, what, what exactly were his rules? Okay don't get divorced and um you know don't you know you have to always turn the other cheek and whatever you figure out the rules and then that's the rules and then now right, we're right. in this rut right so yeah. we want to avoid that but how do you avoid the other rut of just there are no rules whatever yes. you want you know just You know, and and that's all fine and well until you start trampling on other people, I guess. And then you're, well, hold on a second. Jesus said this, well, you know, I I listened to the word of God, you know, and and I'm inspired and the Holy Spirit is with me and I've decided that I should take all your money and punch you in the face. Not really, but you know what I mean. So how do you you trace between those two?
1: Yeah, that's good. One of the things that Jesus draws us towards is to leave behind the old operating system of discerning your ethics through the letter of the law and move into the new operating system of discerning your ethics through the love of God that Jesus models for us. And what's important is if you is that he doesn't just teach the end of the law or the end of religion. The, my book's called The End of Religion, but as I move through the end of religion, I help set us up for the beginning of something new. So it's the end of one thing, but it's also the beginning of something new. So Jesus doesn't just say, we're done with all that legalism. Do whatever you want," he says. "We're done with all that legalism. Keep your eyes on me, and I'm going to teach you how to live a life of other-centered love. I will teach you about what forgiveness looks like, forgiving others the way you've been forgiven by me. Right? Follow, love others the way I've loved you. Um, I'm going to teach you what um, compassion looks like because I've been compassionate towards you. I'm going to teach you what laying your life down in service. He teaches this um, this new way of loving this new commandment, love others as I have loved you in John 13, um, in the same context as when he washes his disciples' feet. So you become the person who serves others and cares for them. So he doesn't just take away the law and leave a vacuum, an ethical vacuum that we fill with whatever we want. He takes away the letter of the law and fills it with a very compelling and robust mentorship in what it means to love well. And love becomes the superior ethical guidance system to law um, so we're not just talking about um, you know remove the law antinomianism you know it's called remove the law and then just live uh, as a lawless you know selfish society but he, one of the if we follow the way of Jesus we're leaving the law behind so we can learn to love better mm-hmm. and one of the, this this inside out way of living, is superior than the outside-in way of law. Law might constrain us, but law brings out and constrains us from doing all kinds of evil things. Sure, but one of the things about law, and the Apostle Paul talks about this a lot in Romans seven, is that law tends to tempt us to be worse versions of ourselves. Um, some some simple examples: when when I'm driving down the highway near my house. Uh, the speed limit is 100 kilometers an hour. So that's around 60 miles per hour. Um, when I'm driving, my mindset tends to be in relationship to that law. It's a minor law, but it, I see the principle at work. My, my mindset is how far over 100 can I go before I get pulled over by the police? Uh, my mindset is always what can I get away with? But now the consequences there are minor. But that training and that mindset, you take that into relationships and in life that idea of how, far, how much can I get away with before I'll get in trouble. That's what the mindset that law leads to. Whereas love leads to a different mindset that says, how can I serve people around me? Not what can I get away with? Um, so Jesus actually, while he removes the law, he leads us into a much better ethical system that's other-centered.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so that's great. And I hear you know, this call of Jesus and something I called people to call to people's attention on Facebook recently is that Jesus, there's certain things Jesus never said. He might've implied them, but he never said, worship me. He never said, talk about me. He never said, sing about me. He never said build buildings and go to the buildings and sing and talk about me. What he did say is follow me. And then he showed what, what we should do. Um, but if you emphasize that too much people will say well that's just um that's a works-based salvation and you're you're trying to earn your salvation or perhaps you've entirely dispensed with this whole idea of salvation and and you're just focused on as kind of the 19th century liberals um just a a Jesus who is a good example so i am really curious because you mentioned kind of this um i forget the term that you use but um this community of people where you're defined by the center and not by the mm-hmm. outer edges
1: right. centered set instead of um uh, uh oh it'll come back to me yeah okay
0: hey, <laughs> yeah. rewind the podcast to minute three three and three and a half and it'll be about there um <laughs> yeah. but uh you know w- as evangelicals, we're so focused on salvation. We want to make sure that you're saved and we wouldn't want to mislead anybody and we wouldn't want somebody to get it just a little bit wrong and then end up in the bad place. How do you, how do you sidestep that tension of like making sure that people say the right things, do the right things? Because it's, it feels to me as though if you're so focused and fixated on that tension, it's hard to avoid figuring out what the rules are, figuring out what the formulas are, figuring out all the things to do is there a way that we can bring dial back the tension a little bit on that question of, of kind of hell and, and who's in, who's out?
1: Yeah, that's good. That's good. And that comes back to, um, as I recall, the, the
0: idea of centered
1: set versus bounded set. Um, if you think of a bounded set as the thing that keeps us together is, the, it is around the outside. It's what binds us. It's the perimeter. Um, that's what holds us together. And, um, and that skin that we wrap around our movement then becomes of ultimate importance. And we have, to, we have to do perimeter patrolling. We have to always make sure we know who's in and who's out. What, how far can you go? And then finally lose your salvation or not be a Christian in the first place or be on the outside and not be one of us. That's called bounded set. And it actually just forces our attention to the perimeter rather than the center. Centered set says we're going to keep Jesus at the center and we're going to follow him best we can. And we're going to trust that others are doing the same. At least we'll encourage them to do the same. And, and we're not going to patrol who's in and who's out. We're just going to model and encourage uh, Jesus at the center and keeping our eyes on him, talking about him and we'll all be healthier for it. So it's less judgmental on who's in, who's out, but it's more focused on what's most important, the center of the whole thing, rather than just Mm. patrolling the perimeter. Um, And so Jesus, I think, he taught this way, like in the Great Commission, I mentioned when he begins at the end of Matthew's gospel by saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples. His therefore go and make disciples is based on the line before that, which is all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. In other words, it's all about me, therefore go and make disciples. What he doesn't say is, People are dying and lost and on their way to hell. Therefore, go and make disciples. That would be bounded set. We've got to get them on this side of the line instead of that side of the line because, yeah. you know, the consequences is yeah. on that side. That's not his motivation. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm not even commenting that. What I'm, what I'm commenting on is that Jesus says he should be enough of a motivation for us, enough of a focus to, to make us want to talk about him and share his truth with others because it's very freeing. Um, and we see his disciples really learn from this in the gospel of, or sorry, in the, the book of Acts. Um, Which is our kind of first-century history of the early church. What is never mentioned in that book is hell. It's never mentioned, and there's a there's a dozen or so different examples of sermons preached in the Book of Acts by the early apostles. Um, Only twice they mention judgment, some you know judgment day is coming, but they never mention hell. It's not their motivation. Because Jesus didn't say, that, is, that should be your motivation. He said, all authority in heaven and earth will be given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. The beauty and grace and joy and love of Jesus should be enough of a motivator for anyone who wants to talk about Jesus and share that with others. Uh, we're not inviting people to run away from something. We're inviting people to run towards someone. It's a positive message with Jesus at the center. That center set. So Jesus says that, and then he goes on to say, so make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and, and continuing the Great Commission, he says, and teaching them to obey as follow everything I have commanded you. Even there, he puts himself and his teachings in the middle, not just the Bible in general, right? Mm-hmm. He, he says, you know, Christian discipleship, he says, he it, it it could have been uh, taken the opportunity to say, teaching them to obey everything the Bible teaches, but he doesn't say that. That's too general. You can use the Bible to justify violence, judgmentalism, anything. He says, teaching them. Christian discipleship is teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. That doesn't mean we only read the teachings of Jesus. It means we read the whole Bible in light of the teachings of Jesus. Teaching them, and we, we let every part of the Bible lead us to Jesus. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And I'll be with you always. So we do this in partnership with Jesus. And by the way, I love the fact that his last words recorded in Matthew are I will be with you always to the very end of the world. I will be with you always. I'm not going anywhere. And then the next thing that happens is he leaves them. I think that's great. (laughs) I'll be with you always. I'm not going anywhere. Okay, bye. And then as Luke records the ascension. But his whole point is when the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit is going to bring you the mind of Christ, the presence of Jesus. And we we enter into this beautiful spiritual way of living where we have an awareness of this Jesus from 2,000 years ago is here with me now and i'm partnering with him
0: yeah and what i've heard you say is that there ought to be a difference there is a difference between um primary and tertiary motivations so you can have a primary motivation to get married and then there might be some tertiary motivations and it's important to get those right obviously your primary motivation should be you know love and companionship and you you know you're you think this is the wonderful person Some secondary motivations might be, well, it'd be nice if she would cook and clean and bear my children and, you know, our finances will improve and I might lose some weight and all these sorts of things. If you, if you invert those two, all of a sudden you have a problem, right? It's not a problem that somewhere in the back of your mind, you're thinking, uh, you know, she might cook and clean for me. But if that's your primary motivation, then she would object and say, hold on a second, I'm not a free domestic servant. And, and I think that with Jesus, we have inverted things and it's not that, um, it's not that hell, it's not that, that some of these things aren't part of the picture, but where did Jesus tell us to put our emphasis? And I don't think that Jesus, I don't think there's ever a place in scripture where we are told to, um, to figure out who's not saved and fix that problem for them.
1: Yeah. And it's just, we're not trying to, it's, I hope that people who are listening will understand. This is not two dudes trying to be progressive. These, this is two guys actually leaning into the Bible even more and noticing, oh, the early church never used hell as a motivational factor in their evangelism.
0: Mm-hmm. Huh.
1: That's being more biblical, not less. Um, whenever the topic of hell comes up in the Apostle Paul's teaching, He never links that with a motivation for evangelism. So we've already noticed Jesus didn't use it as a motivation for evangelism in the Great Commission. Then we notice in the book of Acts, none of the apostles ever use it as a motivation when they preach evangelistic sermons. And we've noticed whenever the apostle Paul writes to the churches and says, you should go and evangelize, he never says because people are lost and dying and on their way to hell. Sometimes he talks about hell, but he doesn't link it with evangelism. Sometimes he talks about evangelism. He never links it with hell. So even in the conversations they had behind the scenes about why should we go out into the world and tell more people about Jesus, the church never linked the two together. So being more biblical is actually more freeing and it's more centered set. It's more focused on Jesus. He is enough of a motivation. We think he's completely freeing and we just want more people to hear about this lovely message that can rescue them from their own guilt and shame, but also rescue them from some of the religious uh, you know weight that maybe they 've been carrying around with them
0: mm-hmm. so I want to transition now into talking about religious trauma syndrome. Uh, this is a term that was coined recently to talk about people that have post traumatic stress uh, symptoms um, or extreme anxiety and various symptoms that can arise from traumas that that happen in church or being terrified of hell, being terrified of the rapture. Uh, being terrified of an angry God. Um, Some are very repressed in their sexuality. Some have developed um, PTSD and social anxiety. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a very large complex issue and psychologists are kind of becoming more and more aware of just how damaged people can be. Um, I, I have some specific questions to ask, but in general, how do you deal with somebody that, you know, I, I spoke personally with somebody that said it's as though they're allergic to religion, you know, because there's been so much hurt and pain, it's like they go into anaphylactic shock and she's not being hyperbolic. Like she has anxiety attacks, panic attacks, her body's, you know, like her, her, her insides tense up. She has migraines. She's sick. All these Mm -hmm. sorts of things that might happen. If you come in contact with peanut butter, Mm -hmm. you know, there has been, if, if people have been significantly harmed by religion, they can have these sorts of reactions. So how do you, as a pastor who goes to a church, you know, and it does kind of look and feel and smell kind of churchy. How do you help people that have, that are dealing with the symptoms of uh, religious trauma syndrome?
1: Mm, Yeah. Um, I'm glad you're raising this. We have a number of people who have made their way to the meeting house who would be in that category as well. Um, And, what a shame that the idea of the God who is love should be attached to instead the God who produces trauma. Um, I think the three most beautiful words ever penned in the English language are those three words, God is love. And that's, that's the essence of the almighty, the The DNA of the divine is love. These are the guts of God. And the, the, the that, that statement's only made uh, three times. It's, um, uh, God is love, and God is light, and um, and God is spirit, Jesus says in John 4. Um, these are three statements about the essence of God. Um, so, and, and they're all describing the same thing. These are not th- three different components that you mix together, three ingredients you mix together to get God, and they're all different. But light, God is light, and that light is love. Uh, God is spirit, and so he's the spiritual light of love. These are three ways of describing the same essence of God. Um, And then everything else that is expressed by God, his expressions, are different from his essence, which is love. So that everything that God might express in our lives, and if someone, for instance, is is being a religious hypocrite, God might bring consequence into their life as discipline, Um, but that's an expression of love. Not that God finally gave up with them. so I'm I'm not loving you anymore, so I'm just going to punish you. But everything then that God would bring into our life or allow into our life is somehow an expression of love. Now this this changes for me. It, uh, it gives me courage to to begin to reapproach my own faith, reapproach this God, and to admit I have been damaged by people using the word God, but I haven't been damaged by God. and And my healing journey will include me getting to know the real God not, um, not. I, I would hate for religious leaders who have wounded others to then have, um, have spoiled their opportunity to get to know the actual one who can heal them. I mean, mm-hmm. the fact that Jesus, when he was on earth physically, was always healing people. We have to remember that that was always a metaphor for that he's the source of healing. Of, but physical healing shows you that you can trust the spiritual healing he's offering. It's just you don't see the spiritual healing immediately. So, so physical healing was always a pointer to the deeper spiritual healing he's offering people. Um, that was true, like in John, in, in sorry Matthew nine, when he says to the guy, you know, your sins are forgiven. Uh, he's healed him spiritually, released him from all his shame and guilt, and the religious leaders say how do you have authority to forgive sins? Only God has authority. And Jesus says, well, so that you know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins, watch this. And he heals him physically. But there, the physical healing is only evidence that there's a deeper spiritual healing Jesus is offering through his forgiveness and embrace. One of the names for Jesus uh, that is um, mentioned early on in Matthew's gospel is that he will be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. And when we think of that, especially around Christmas, and we hear this word Emmanuel come up, which means God with us, um, God with us doesn't just mean God came down to be physically with us in the flesh. It means God with us as in God is on our side. You know, I'm with you, man. I'm not against you. I'm with you. In fact, that's how it was originally used in the prophecy, pointing to Jesus. That's the most original meaning. God is on your side. He's not against you. So, So the idea of Jesus showing us that he's Emmanuel is that you can look at Jesus and see evidence. It's not just a wishful thinking hypothesis. I think God is good, or I think God is love. Everyone wants to say that. But Jesus provides us the evidence that that's true. When John wrote God is love, he said that after spending three years hanging out with Jesus and believing that Jesus shows us who God is. John's the one who started his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then became flesh. And so John John says, because I've hung out with Jesus, he's Emmanuel. He shows me that God's with me, not against me. I have come to the conclusion God is love. So there's a lot to say. I understand those people who say, I need to back away from this. I have been traumatized, and they need to have some time away. But the goal of healing is not just to stay broken and distant. The goal of healing, then, is to slowly begin to rebuild. We may need to deconstruct that point of pain. But we deconstruct, hopefully, not just so we can live with rubble around, but so that we can now reconstruct something that's more beautiful. And I think Jesus is the route to do that.
0: So, um, final question here, because I know that you're, you're you're running off somewhere soon. Um, you know, that was a great sermon. And so often, you know, people preach sermons and we get in this mode of like, yeah, preach it, brother. And then we sing a song, do the offering, and by the time we leave, you know, it's not much has changed and we have such a rut of going back into the same thing of figuring out what the rules are and figuring out who the social club is and just being comfortable in our white evangelical little bubble. Um, What are kind of next steps or, or, or for somebody that the bubble isn't the temptation, but the rubble is the problem. Like where, where can we, where can we begin to start building on Jesus when all of the words of Jesus um, for a lot of people are just blanketed in religious, yeah. you know, garb?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I can answer that in two ways. And one is to refer people to what we are doing uh, at our church and, um, and use that as a point of reference. But another, another way is to give people kind of a, a do it yourself uh, starter pack and mm-hmm. to say, um, because the relate the spirituality of Jesus is so relational and so um horizontal as I mentioned it's it's good to gather with a few other people who are at the same place same space as you are in and maybe some people who are a little further along the journey as well because we don't want to just get together and share problems and say here's how I'm deconstructing how are you deconstructing and we're just reinforcing the deconstruction but to have someone who's a little further along in the journey to seek them out and thankfully um one of the positive things of 2020, sending us into our completely online world is we become better at finding community online, which means if you don't have someone who's geographically down the street from you, you can still find community in some way. To be, um, and your podcast is part of that process for people. Mm-hmm. So to begin to, con- but I would say connect with some people. So you're not just passively listening, but you're actually engaging with some people who are where you're at or further along the journey than you and make it relational as you ask the question, how can Jesus make a difference in this healing journey that we want to be on? This deconstruction and reconstruction journey. That's why I wrote The End of Religion. Um, the, I'm, I'm working right now on the study guide to go with it that will help bring okay. people, whether, whether Christian or non-Christian or somewhere in between or not too sure, Together to say, well, we all have something to learn from Jesus. Let's just be honest as we process this. If people need that kind of a guide, then I would recommend the end of religion for that, and then the upcoming study guide. Um, and uh, and I mentioned if they if they care to learn more about our church, at least how our church does it. as an example at the meeting house, we not only have our Sunday experience, but we have what we call home churches. And now all of our home churches are online, and and that's where we just kind of get real with each other and process. Uh, how how is what I learned on Sunday making a difference in my life? And what kind of questions is it raising for me to turn the academic exercise into something purely relational? And um, and so some, whether that's through the meeting house or some other church or in some other way, I think that bringing it into the, into relationships is going to be so important. There's a great line by an author named Larry Crabb, and uh, we use it often. He says, real church happens when you turn the chairs to face one another. Hmm. That's good. So it's, you know, real church is not all sitting the same way, listening to the paid professional holy man at the front tell you stuff. Real church happens when that's over, and now you turn the chairs to face one another and get involved in each other's lives. And in that sense, that's the real meaning of the word church, which is why I'm not afraid to use it if I can redeem rather than reject the word. Uh, If you've been hurt by a version of church, the antidote, I think, is to actually find out what Jesus meant When he used the word church and said, whenever two or three gather in my name, I'm there. That's it. You're having church.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time, Bruxy. And uh, I've appreciated your sermons in the past. I'm rediscovering them again now. And uh, this book, The End of Religion, Encountering the Subversive Spirituality of Jesus. uh, You don't hold back. Uh, You're not somebody that's like, oh, well, the church isn't that bad. You know, here's my apologetic. Here's all the reasons that the Crusades were like kind of okay. Uh, you very much uh, are digging into the reality of the problems with the church and then pointing us to Jesus as a different way. Um, and so I would just, yeah, thanks for the book. Thanks for this interview. And uh, thanks well, for what you do.
1: Yeah, thanks, Josiah, for what you're doing and, and um, the space you're making for people to process this stuff. It's a privilege to be a part of it. If people want to learn more from me and my angle, besides looking up The End of Religion online, uh, they can go to the meetinghouse.com. com. Uh, that's our church's website, the meetinghouse.com, or my personal website is Bruxy. My name,
0: dot com. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Good man. All the best. Hey, uh, do you need to go right, right now? Uh, I can take five minutes. Um, I don't know if this is a five minute question, but it just, it didn't fit in the podcast. Um, sure. I'd be really curious to know what you would say as a pacifist to a woman in an abusive relationship. Do you tell her to continue submitting and and turn the other cheek or what?
1: Yeah, I, I do I encourage her to leave and um which I think is the equivalent of turning the other cheek. Jesus, it's interesting when he says if someone strikes you, turn the other cheek. What he doesn't say is if someone strikes you, let them. Hmm. If someone forces you to go a mile let them. And if someone sues you for your coat, let them. In every one of those scenarios in Matthew 5, he gives them a positive reaction that it, that elevates their dignity. Um, and so I would say, what is the positive action you can do now that elevates your dignity and doesn't let them to continue to abuse you by being passive hmm. um, with, without being violent? You don't have to be violent, but you can still do something. So if, if for instance, a woman's being abused, I would say, the way you love him well is to hold him accountable for his actions. Um, It's not a matter of saying, well, I love my husband, but maybe I should stop loving him. I usually say to women in a scenario like that, because if you tell them stop loving your husband and love yourself, some of them can't do that. They like, but I love him. So I have to stay, I guess. Mm -hmm. So what I say is if you really want to love him better, you need to leave because love says, I'm going to help you become the best version of yourself. And if you stay, you're just enabling a bad version of him. So um, you need to leave and that's your way of loving him through accountability.
0: That's awesome. Um, yeah. Can I ask you another sound bite question? Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Um, I was in Africa and I was trying to do the right things. And Jesus said, you give to everyone who asks you and do not turn away. And I had millions of, not millions, I had dozens of beggars. And I didn't give them uh, money, and it's bothered me to this day. Uh, but I was told by the local pastors and by the book, When Giving Hurts, that you don't just give, you know, you, you cause a lot of damage.
1: Mm-hmm. So how do
0: you square that circle when you're being, you're trying to be very faithful to Jesus' words, but when it comes to giving, like, it just, sometimes it just doesn't work.
1: Uh, yeah, I understand that. I think there are two ways of giving today, maybe there weren't two ways back then. Back then, there were no systems of giving. There were no no charities, per se. There was... The way you gave was to literally take money out of your purse or pocket and put it into the hands of a banker. Um, and today we have taken that money and gathered it up and put it into institutions, homes, places that provide meals, provide uh, residents and opportunities for people who are poor. And then hopefully also provide you know, micro business opportunities for them to not remain poor. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's both and though, rather than either or. So I still want to keep some pocket change to give to the beggar directly, partially because that's spiritual training for me, you know, to stare into the face of poverty and to say, I want to do something uh, directly. But at the same time, uh, we live in a society now that has gone beyond that and given us tools to invest in. So I think writing that monthly check, you know, sending, sending money to an organization that you believe in and is helping the poor is another significant way of giving now that Jesus didn't have available in his day to be able to train.
0: Um, but that's not literally what Jesus said. Like he said, if somebody asks you, then don't turn away and give. And
1: Well, and that's why I said it's both and rather than either or. So if I'm investing in a particular organization, I don't then walk down the street and when someone's begging from me, say, sorry, I gave at the office. I want to do both. I want to keep some pocket change, like I said, and give directly. I think that's good spiritual training for me to people who ask on the street. Um, but I also acknowledge that that's not the primary way I'm going to make a difference because that's continuing to just enable uh, poverty when there are now organizations that can actually help people who are in poverty to move forward. And I want to invest in that as my primary form of giving. So I see it as both and rather than either or. Okay. I'll say one more thing about this, which is interesting. Um, One of the things Jesus teaches in Matthew 5 As he goes through what are called the six antitheses, there are six contrasts, six times that you hear him say, you have heard it said, but I tell you, you have heard it said, but I tell you. Um, He's teaching his disciples how to follow scriptural teaching according to the heart and not according to the letter of the law. He's teaching them how to use their own Bible. You, know, you have heard it said, but I tell you. So he, and what you what you notice in the pattern is that in many cases he t- he takes an external rule and he internalizes the principle. So his first one, you have heard it said, "Thou shalt not kill," but I tell you, don't be angry, and don't disrespect or call people names. And as he's teaching that, he's helping us. Um, he's helping. Well, if you're not angry and you respect people, you're probably not going to kill them. So you'll still not kill people, but. Thou shalt not kill doesn't change your heart and your respect towards others. You know, it just changes maybe your behavior because you're afraid of being punished. Whereas Jesus brings it inside and talks about your attitude toward others. So he's actually teaching us how to read our own Bibles because the Old Testament's full of laws. But Jesus says, well, ask the question, what's the reason behind the rule? What's the love that motivated that law and follow that love? Mm. And so it would be a shame if we then came to the teaching of Jesus and we didn't apply the same principle right? and say, what's the letter of the law of what Jesus taught? And say, well, no, Jesus already taught, taught us that when we read something in the Bible, which now includes Jesus' own teachings, we should say, what's the love behind why he said this? Hmm. And now how do we do that today? For instance, one illustration in um, Leviticus 19, it says, do not harvest your fields right to the edges. If you're a farmer, do not harvest your right to the edges, but leave some of your grain or wheat or whatever your produce is, around all the edges of your field. Why? Because the poor people in that day wandered through the rural areas and you were leaving food for them. That's how you took care of them. Now today, how do we obey that? The love embedded within the law. If I'm a farmer, uh, well, there are no poor people wandering in the rural areas looking for food. They all go to the urban areas now. Right? Yeah. So if I'm a h- farmer and I want to obey the love of that law, I disobey the letter of the law and I harvest to the edges of the field. But then I give the, whether it's produce or it's profits, I give that to urban centers where it can get to the people who are poor. So you break the law in order to follow the love. Right. And I learned all of that from Jesus's teaching in Matthew five. And so then I apply that same principle to Jesus's teaching.
0: Okay.
1: That's a, a mouthful, but I think it changes our entire nope. relationship okay. with the Bible. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, thanks for this extra bonus okay. bit.
1: Yeah, okay, bonus round. Love it. The after part. All right. Love you. Okay, all, right. all the that. best to you, man. All right, bye.